I'm nervous, I have to say. <laughs> You are listening to She Has a PhD. My name is Anna, and my first guest is Dr. Patricia Herter, or Trish, as her friends like to call her. Born in South Africa, Patricia came to the US in the 80s, where she graduated from MIT in chemical engineering. Mother of two, passionate about horses and horse riding, Patricia retired for six weeks before taking up the next challenge in her career, being the CEO of Lindra Therapeutics. Thank you so much for being my first guest. It's a great pleasure having you for this conversation. Thank you very much, Anna. I'm very happy to be here, and it's nice to have met you through this process. You were born in South Africa. Your father was a mechanical engineer, and you end up getting a bachelor's in chemical engineer because uh, engineering was for men. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life uh, in South Africa and how did you end up studying chemical engineering? Yeah, so I mean, I'm very happy I grew up in South Africa. It was a lovely place to grow up and had a really fun childhood. And But when I was trying to figure out what to do as a career, I had lots of ideas. You know, I want to be a vet and I want to be this and I want to be that. And I thought maybe I'd be a chemist. Um, I like maths and I like science. And then when I was about 16, I went to a career fair and I heard about chemical engineering, which seemed like the perfect combination of everything that I enjoyed doing. And I had never actually heard about that before. So even though my dad was a mechanical engineer, I hadn't heard about chemical engineering. And for whatever reason, I thought mechanical engineering wasn't something that girls should do. So I remember going home for dinner and saying to my parents, oh, I found out about chemical engineering. It sounds like a great thing. And my parents were like, yeah, that's great. Why don't you become a chemical engineer? And so that was when I was 16. And that's what I decided to do. And I just kind of stuck with it and never, never regretted it. I always thought it was a, a fun, fun career. So. You got the opportunity to come to the U.S. Uh, where you got a master's degree in mechanical engineering and a PhD from MIT in chemical engineering. What brought you here? Yes, yeah, so I was thinking about when I was finishing my bachelor's degree, you know, I considered going to work just in a factory or something, but then I thought maybe I'd do a master's degree and I was planning to just do it in South Africa. But then one day, one of my lecturers said after class, if anybody's interested in going to America next year, come talk to me. And I didn't really have any big interest in going to America, so I didn't go talk to him. But then again, went home for dinner, talked to my parents, and said, just as a joke, I said, oh, I'm going to America next year, thinking they'd be shocked and say, you know, are you crazy? And they were like, oh, that's a great idea. I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> so then I went back and talked to the professor and, and found out about this opportunity. And it was actually in the mineral processing engineering department at West Virginia University um, that they were looking for students. And uh, there was a postdoc who, you know, had been in South Africa and he'd gone to America and he was over on vacation. So he was basically recruiting people. And so basically I signed up and that's how I landed up in West Virginia, um, you know, in the mineral processing engineering department. But then, uh, you know, I didn't really like, um, they didn't have any real courses in that department. And so I started taking courses in mechanical engineering just for fun, because, you know, if you take chemical engineering, thermodynamics or mechanical engineering, thermodynamics, they're almost like different subjects. And so it was just kind of interesting to do that. And I'd fluid mechanics and other things I liked. And so then I basically um, went to the head of the mechanical engineering department and said, you know, could I transfer um, to your department instead and still keep on doing my same research with the same advisor, but just, you know, be officially in your department. And they accepted me. So that was how I transferred to mechanical engineering. You know, that's a, it takes, it takes a lot of courage to step outside your comfort zone, right? And you already told me that uh, your parents were supportive, uh, but what kind of advice would you give to uh, young uh, female scientists that are now trying to go outside of their comfort zone and start a new journey in their careers? Yeah, I definitely think taking risks and doing things that make you uncomfortable um, build character. So for me, you know, coming to America, I didn't know anybody and it was a big step. I don't think I was smart enough to realize, you know, exactly what I was doing, but um, when I got to America and I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any friends and was missing my family, it was definitely tough. But I think it was very character building as well, you know, learning how to be self-sufficient and stand on my own two feet and things like that. So I think even sometimes when you do things that if you had, if you knew what it was going to be like, you wouldn't choose to do it. But at the same time, having gone through it makes you stronger and better at the end of it all. You know, so I think not being afraid to do things, even if it seems a little risky. For women, getting the opportunity to come to America and pursue a degree is not always smooth sailing. What was the most challenging situation you faced? Yeah, so I didn't obviously get to meet the person that landed up being my advisor before I came. And, you know, it was the days before Zoom or anything like that. So it was literally, you know, I arrived and then I met him. And, you know, he wasn't really my dream advisor, to put it mildly. Um, he was kind of an interesting character. And, and 
he was very powerful in the department I was in. So I was sort of worried about if I got to the end of my thesis and if I had a, you know, anything where it was a disagreement that he would be able to prevent me from graduating, that would be a problem. So, you know, it was part of the reason I transferred to mechanical engineering. And then I was able to get a thesis committee chairman who was in the mechanical engineering department. So I ended up having four committee members altogether, three that were from the mechanical engineering department and then my advisor. And when I was finished my thesis and I wanted to graduate and I defended my thesis, um, you know, the three members of my committee that were mechanical engineering, all oh, this is great, this is fantastic, you know, love your thesis, you know, graduate, no problem. And my advisor said he wouldn't sign my thesis because my you know, the hypothesis he put forward, I said, wasn't correct. And I put forward a different hypothesis and he didn't like that. So anyway, so he said he wouldn't sign my thesis. And so then I was pretty distraught. And I went to the chair of the department and said, you know, what should I do? And he said, you don't have to worry because you only need three people to sign your thesis. So have the committee chairman call him up and tell him that if he doesn't want to sign the thesis, that's, you know, that's his prerogative, but you know, you'll still graduate no matter what. And so they did that. And then the advisor called me up and said, oh, he reread my thesis and it was great. And he had no hes hesitation signing it. And so I graduated. But needless to say, that was like a pretty stressful time because I really wanted to leave. You know, I'd already been accepted at MIT for my PhD starting in the fall. And I had plans to travel over the summer and visit my family and everything else. I definitely did not want to get stuck um, in West Virginia. So that was a, you know, a really stressful time, but um, you know, it all worked out for the best. So it's it's great to know that you you can overcome those situations uh, and you know such challenges still exist nowadays so what is your advice for helping women being more confident and speaking up i think you know you kind of need people in your corner you need, you need a support network you know whether that be friends or mentors or you know maybe find a professor who's friendly and who can advise you and how to deal with certain situations you know you can't you don't want to take it on your yourself you know you really want to have people in your corner supporting you and then then you can be you know stronger and and more you know more resilient and take these setbacks a little bit more in stride you know i i absolutely agree talking a bit about your of your early career steps uh you started your career as a group leader at union camp followed by being the director of formulation development at merck how was your transition from academia to industry yeah, so um, I actually started as a scientist in the paper industry and then I got eventually promoted to being a, a group leader. But um, I'd say the biggest thing that was an adjustment for me was, you know, back when I was in graduate school and, and in school, the whole concept around teamwork just wasn't there. So it was very individual. So it was like all about you and you had to be the best and you were the smartest and you wrote the best papers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and nowadays, I think ed even in education, there's a lot more emphasis on teamwork. But then I went to work and at work, it was all about teams because we're working on, for example, solving a big problem with regarding the paper and so with the paper mill and the paper mill engineer and the mill manager and there were just all kinds of people that had to be involved. And at first that sort of bugged me because I figured I could solve the problem by myself and I didn't need any help. And then I realized that actually there were a lot of things that different people brought to the table and that you know teamwork really was a great thing. And so that was my biggest sort of aha moment about working in industry versus you know working in academia. Um, I also love the fact that you know going from academia where you're sort of solving theoretical problems and you choose things based on what's likely to get funding, as opposed to when you work in industry, you're solving real problems and the funding's automatically there because it's a problem that needs solving. And I really love that. So you get all the resources you need and the equipment you need to just really go at it and solve the problem. And you know that, so you're really focusing on actually solving something that's important and you have the resources to do it. And I really like that about industry. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's great. And, uh, and I kind of agree with you because you know, I'm also in, in industry. So for the, the, the young, the female scientists that, that are listening to, to us and that they, they also want to take this step, what uh, should they consider when making this transition? Well, I think, you know, when I was finishing up my PhD and obviously the professors are all kind of in favor of you staying in academia, but you have to write a research proposal about what you want to do and you don't really know enough to know what you want to do. And you're supposed to be something different than what you did your PhD on. So it's supposed to be something in a whole new area that you know nothing about. And it just seemed very sort of hypothetical and and not not practical and so and then the whole concept of you know when you look at a lot of academ academics a lot of them you spend a lot of their time just raising money you know as opposed to actually working on on science and so i think you know i think for yourself you need to think about like what do you really want to do what do you enjoy doing um you know and if if if, if the kinds of things you do in academia are appealing to you then absolutely you should do it but you shouldn't let the pressure of you know, you're coming out of an academic situation where the obviously the bias of your advisors is to you know encourage academia because that's the path they chose and maybe branch out and speak to some people who went into industry and ask you know what what are they working on and how do they enjoy that and and maybe just get more of a balanced view and then decide what you think is really 
the right fit for you, basically. I mean, I think they're both good. I mean, I think academia is great too. It's just, I don't think it's one's better than the other. I think they're both really important. Just here a, a bit discussion, and this is like a, a questions a little out, out of the track, just because we are discussing it. And I, and I think this could be uh, good for other, other um, young females to, to listening. Uh, you know, one of the, the first mentors that I had, uh, he asked me uh, one question that uh, no one had asked me before. And I was already in my, um, the third year of my PhD, which was, where do you see yourself in the next five years? And the, that question was really hard to answer because I was like, I don't know what, you know, what do you want me to think? And, you know, this was kind of the click for me to start thinking ahead of time. And nowadays when I look back and it's a kind of an advice that I think is important is like a, your life, the, your life in five years is going to depend on the decision that you take now, right? Do you like to comment on this? What, what do you think like this type of uh, thinking ahead of time and having someone helping you uh, thinking about it could be helpful for, for girls to, to take the next step? Uh, it's another interesting question because I think that you can divide the world in half. You can divide the world into people who like to think about where they're going to be in five or ten years and the people who don't. And I'm in the don't category because <laughs> for me it's more just been like every time something's happened to me, it's always been completely unexpected. You know, it's, it's always unexpected. And I always just try to do the best I, am, I can at the thing I'm doing now and then just wait and see what happens. And it's something good has always come along, you know, so it's, it's kind of funny. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a five-year plan or 10-year plan and going after that if, if that makes you feel comfortable and if that makes you feel good. But I think if you're the kind of person that it actually just stresses you out and you have no idea, then don't worry about it because an, an alternative way to do it is to say, I'm going to be the absolute best at what I'm doing now. I'm going to really excel and some opportunity is going to come along. And when the opportunity comes along, I'm going to jump on it and then I'm going to do it. You know, and so basically, for example, I, was, I had no plans to leave the paper industry, but, you know, I got laid off because they sold my company to another company and they shut down the R&D center. So then I was like, okay, so I'll end up being a consultant for a couple of years because I didn't want to stay in paper and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I got this email from a recruiter about joining Merck and I had no interest, no, I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't, had any desire to move into the pharmaceutical industry, it never entered my brain, but they sent me this email. I was like, oh sure, I'll talk to you. And then I landed up at Merck, you know, and then I landed up getting laid off from Merck and I landed up at Vertex and that was fantastic. So it's just to me, it's always just happened that way. And for example, I didn't plan to be the CEO of Lindra either, but I was talking to Amy because I was trying to get on boards. And so I was networking with her for that purpose. And she convinced me I should be the CEO of Lindra. And I'm like, sure, another opportunity, let me take it. You know, So I think that's just like the way I kind of tend to roll. But again, I know some people really like having the five-year plan and the 10-year plan and it makes them you know, have some focus and, and it doesn't mean if you have that plan that if an opportunity comes along that's not in your plans, you can't take it anyway. So I don't think there's any harm in having a five-year plan, but I don't think it's critical to have one if that's not something that you feel, you know, comfortable with, so. I mean, it's it's great to have that uh, that that perspective as well. I feel like I'm uh, the one that are in the, the planning, but it's, uh, it's also great to sometimes have some space for opportunities that uh, could arrive and, right. uh, and, and bring us some, some joy. Right, but I do, I do really believe in the whole picturing your future more in terms of how you want to be, how you want to live. So for example, you know, as a little kid, I always said, when I grow up, I'm gonna have a farm and a horse, you know, and so I, it took me a while, well, not that long, by the time I was 32, I think I had a farm and a horse, but anyway, and then now I've got this picture of like, I want to be in a place with rolling green hills and paddocks and go galloping my horses, this is my retirement picture. You know, so I think it's good to picture how you want your life to be because then you will actually, you know, achieve it. Um, but that's different to me than having sort of a five-year plan, which is career-related, you know, so. That makes, uh, that makes a, a lot of sense. Going back again to, to the beginning uh, of your career, and again, you know, having space to, to see like some opportunities and what can, can, can we do. Uh, I also think uh, that, uh, yeah, mentoring along the way, uh, starting girl in your career, is, uh, it's, it's fundamental. Uh, so, during the early years of uh, your career, did you have a mentor who was critical to your development as a scientist and leader? Yeah, I was pretty lucky actually. So when I when I was I had a couple of job offers, and one of them was from a company called Union Camp, and I hadn't accepted yet, but I was giving a talk at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers in Chicago, and so the company told one of the people that was in their company that was at, attending the conference, this guy called Jim. They said, oh, you know, go listen to a talk and take her out for lunch afterwards so that she'll, you know, be enthusiastic about joining Union Camp or whatever. 
So he did. He took me out to lunch and bought me lamb chops, which I was very excited about because I love lamb chops. <laughs> so anyway, and uh, we had we had a nice time. We headed off, and then when I got to the company, he just he really took me under his wing and just told me like what I should do and what I shouldn't do and what annoyed management and what they liked and you know would give me critique. Like if I was in a meeting and I made a presentation, he would tell me you know, what I did well and what I you know need to improve that kind of thing. And um, he turned out to be you know one of my best friends, and he's the godfather of my daughter, and I'm still friends with him you know a million years later. But um, so that was really, really helpful. And, um, you know, so I think I think all through my life, I've had more of these informal mentors that have been really great. And, um, you know, I think that it's really important to find people that you get along with that maybe know something you don't know. They don't have to be super far ahead of you in your career, but at least something. And um, I think it's really, really important. And then on the other side of the coin, I've also mentored a lot of people and I've gotten a lot out of that as well, because for example, if you're talking to somebody maybe they're in a different department than you are and you understand a little bit more about how your department and their department interacts and you can maybe improve that interaction or you might find out about the kinds of things that are on people's minds that maybe you hadn't thought about and say, oh, well, I wonder if my employees are also worrying about those kinds of things and so maybe you can address them. So it's it's really a two-way street. Um, not to mention it's really fun when you see people that you've mentored and helped coach and develop, you know, being successful. So like the first time that someone who I'd hired straight from the PhD, became a vice president. I was really, really happy. That was made me, really made my day. So yeah, it's definitely a, it's it's great. It's it's something, it's great to be mentored and it's great to mentor other people. I, I totally agree with you. And I think it's uh, fantastic. And again, uh, how thankful I am that you are also spending some time to, you know, share the story with us. And I feel like this is kind of a, maybe off the road mentorship, but I'm sure it's going to help uh, uh, many younger female scientists to, you know, to, to go further. Uh, changing uh, topics a little, uh, you gave birth to your second child three days after starting a new job at Merck. How was being a mom of two right at the start of uh, a new job? And how did you manage your career with kids? Yeah, so I have to say it was, it was really hard because it was not only a new job, it was a new industry. And, um, you know, I had a long commute and my children were, you know, the kind that basically wanted to nurse every hour and a half all the way through the night. So they didn't get much sleep. So I was extremely tired and then uh, came into this new job and I was, the people that were working for me didn't really understand why I'd been hired because I didn't have any pharmaceutical experience. So, you know, why did suddenly this person who knew nothing is suddenly the director of formulation and, you know, this person's been working for years in this field and they they didn't get the job kind of thing. So it wasn't exactly a, a welcoming entree. And um, about two months after I joined, I almost quit because I was just so tired and really unhappy and not enjoying it at all. Um, but then the one person who was really the most difficult of the people that were reporting to me um, and the most unwelcoming um, came into my office on you know January 2nd, right after the, the holiday break when I was really thinking about quitting and sort of said she was transferring to another department. And I was, you know, obviously, she thought I was going to be upset and I was really quite happy to be honest. So anyway, so then I ended up promoting another guy to be a group leader and he was a really great guy and he, he was really nice. And and then I got put on a project that was a really interesting project that ended up turning out to be Genuvia, which is obviously a fantastic drug. And so it was really exciting working on that. And so then after that, everything kind of turned around and I started having fun and really enjoying myself. And, you know, I was glad I didn't quit, but I came pretty close on the 8 a.m. 2nd of January. I was this close to giving up, but I didn't quite. So yeah, I was glad I didn't because it certainly worked out really well for me in the long run, but it was definitely a, a tough. I could imagine. You know, when you when you say that you change leaders and it actually, there was a, a male that uh, come into place that made you feel more comfortable and confident in staying in your in your position. This kind of uh, also remind us that uh, it's it's important for us to 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 try to to push for women in science and to have them in leadership uh, positions. But it's also very important to have uh, male uh, allies in uh, you know working with us as well and, and helping us thrive, right? Yeah, I mean, this was just a he was just a good guy that was you know ready for the role, and and so that's just how it worked out. But. You know, obviously, given that I had promoted him into the role, he was obviously more willing to be supportive of me than maybe somebody who felt like they should have got my job and didn't, you know, so it was a bit of a different dynamic. So what advice uh, do you have for young female scientists that are about to start their families? I'd say, yeah, don't try to be too clever about planning the timing of it, because, you know, I thought I was being kind of clever. So at my first company, I thought, well, I'm not going to have children right away. I'm going to wait until I've you know, establish my career and establish that I'm serious about my career and that I'm not going to be, a, you know, on the mommy track kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, I had a 
miscarriage the first time I got pregnant, which I didn't expect. So that sort of delayed things a little bit more. And then, um, and then my, my daughter was born and when she was five weeks old, they called me into a meeting at work and announced that they were shutting down the company and you know, I either had to move down south and work at a paper mill or, or get laid off. And I was like, well, that was fantastic. You know, I thought I was going to be able to have a baby and maybe not exactly relax, but, you know, not have to worry so much about establishing my credibility. And, and then, you know, it turns out I'm looking for a job with a five week old baby, which was really not the plan at all. So um, it actually worked out well because I'll end up doing this consulting thing. So I actually spent more time at home and had more time with her. So that was fun. And um, and then, of course, I made the brilliant choice of, you know, starting a new job with the second baby. So that was also not great planning. But you know, by that point, by the time my second child was born, I was 37. So I certainly wasn't going to be delaying at that point. And um, so I just think, you know, and it all worked out as the point is I could, you know, so I had a plan. My plan backfired. And so then the timing wasn't great on the one hand. On the other hand, it really doesn't matter. It's just you just make the most of it. You just get through it. And I just think don't be too clever about it and don't try to delay it too long because, um, you know, I think, it's a lot harder to get pregnant and stay pregnant and have healthy babies when you're older. So, you know, don't, don't plan too carefully, I'd say. It's, it's a wise advice, you know, and, and I feel like many of us, and I'm already in my, you know, 30, you know, I'm early 30s, uh, and, and it's true, like you, you emigrate to another country, you, you want to establish yourself, you want to see when it's the best uh, time to have kids, and maybe that's never the perfect time, you are the one that are going to to adapt your life uh, around it and and try to to be successful. So you right. know when when we chat before, uh, we we talk about the the importance of uh, letting go and have uh, help, uh, and uh, also the advice that my supervisor in my in my PhD gave me. You know, just have someone to help you. You know, cooking or cleaning the house because this is important if you wanna then be succeed and have more time for you and for your job. Uh, would you like to share with us uh, a little bit of that conversation as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you know, there's a difference between having it all and doing it all. So, you know, I think it is possible to have it all in the sense of having a job, having a family, having, you know, whatever your sort of sports passion happens to be, which mine happens to be horses. It is possible to do all those things, but not if you also try to do everything yourself. You know, you definitely need help. So you know, outsource things that aren't important to you and, and only do the things that are important to you. So for example, I don't like cleaning houses, so I out, outsource cleaning houses, you know. I don't mind cooking, so I cook some, but not always. And then, um, you know, so I think that's that's really important. And then for me, you know, just relying on daycare, you know, if you've got a commute, it really doesn't work because there's no way you can, you know, it's not fun getting the kids up super early in the morning and then, you know, getting them off to daycare ridiculously, you know, early hour and then you rush off to work and you, then you're commuting in the terrible traffic. And just I don't know how you do that and stay sane, you know, and again, if you're very close to work, maybe it would work. But for me, I always had a commute. And so what I ended up doing was having all pairs because I didn't have any family members, you know, locals. I had all pairs and then the kids would still be in nursery school or like go to home daycare for a half day or something. So that way it all worked that the all pairs also got some time to um, you know, do their studies or whatever. And then the kids had some socialization time, but it also meant that they didn't have to be hauled out of bed at 6 a.m. If they wanted to take some time to get dressed and eat their breakfast, there was no rush. And, um, you know, if a kid was sick or something, there wasn't a big disaster if I was traveling. You know, so just to me, sort of having that double-barreled where they both had either nursery school or school plus an au pair uh, really worked well. And then, you know, other people that I had like, you know, ex or pairs who were still in the country studying or something like that would also help out sometimes. It's just, you really just need, you know, you need a, you need a village basically. And if you're lucky enough to have family, that's great. But if you're foreign and you probably don't have family, then you've kind of got to make your own family and, um, you know, just have people that you can rely on that can help you and be grateful for their help and accept it and don't feel like somehow you're not, you know, that's not good that you need the help or whatever. It's great to have help. So I think that's a, uh... It's it's such an important message, you know, because sometimes you think that uh, you are able to do it and you are able to do it at all. And mm -hmm. that's not true, right? Because, uh, you know, if you don't accept help and, and I feel like this message is, uh, is important, you know, it's okay to have help. It's okay to ask for help so you can balance uh, both sides. Yeah, so, one, one, one like addendum to that too is you can't be a control freak. So say, for example, say you outsource the cleaning of your house. Right, so someone's cleaning your house. If you're then complaining because there's dust on the mental piece or because some little thing wasn't done the way you like it, I didn't even notice that stuff. So if there's something that they did do, then okay, fine, I'll do that one little piece myself. 
which is fine. It's much better than cleaning the whole house, you know. So just be grateful for the things that people do, and if it's not done exactly how you would have done it, just let it go. It's not important. <laughs> I mean, so if fundamentally your house is clean, that's great. You know, if there's something that you prefer, something to be done a bit, a little bit of a different way, whatever, just let it go. So yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, the message: be grateful and let it go. So you can focus in what is exactly important for you. Yeah. So I know you're uh, passionate about horse riding. How do you integrate work and life? Yes, I think it's I think it's important to have something that's really compelling that you like to do because if if your hobby or the thing you do is like just not that compelling, then you you it's very easy to let it go. And when work gets tough or family stuff gets tough, just put it aside. Whereas for me, you know, horses are really important to me. And like once you have a horse, you can't leave the horse sitting in the barn and not exercise, and they kind of need to be exercised. So for me, I've always done it wherever you know, rode early in the morning. Um, you know, at one point it was just, got as ridiculous as 4:45 in the morning because I had a long commute and everything else. And now that I'm zooming, it's a lot better. I can ride at 6:30 in the morning, which is much more pleasant. But um, so I think you know, it's it's just you got to find a way, find something that you really, really are compelled to do, and then have a schedule and just get into a routine and just do it. You know, and and people, some people make you feel bad or try to make you feel guilty or self-imposed Catholic guilt, whatever it is. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I find if I'm not if I'm not riding, um, I get grumpy, and that really helps me in the morning just to go out, go on a nice trail ride, for example, see the sunrise, whatever. It just it starts your day off in a really good way, and it, because I'm very passionate about riding and competing, it makes me stay more flexible. I stretch, and it makes me stay fitter, and I drink less and eat less, and you know all the things that you know you can't be a successful horse rider if you're not healthy and not fit so it kind of gives you other reasons to stay healthy and fit and I think those are all good things so um, I just think it's really really important and, and I think that you know I think the American culture in general is a little bit too kid focused you know where it's like once you have kids you put your own life on hold and everything rolls around the kids and you know when I was a kid we all sailed because my parents loved sailing and I, we love sailing too but it wasn't like well what sport do you want to do dear it's like no our family sailed so we sailed <laughs> it was fun I enjoyed it you know um, I always wanted a ride, and so when I grew up, then I took up riding because that was the thing I always wanted to do. But once I was an adult and I had control of the situation, then I took up riding. You know, but but when I was a kid, even though I would love to have ridden, my family sailed, and I sailed, and it was really fun. And I'm, I don't regret the fact that I sailed. You know, so it's just I think maybe people should be a little bit more, um, you know, selfish in a way, and you know, figure out what makes them happy and make sure that they take time for that. Well, also obviously supporting the kids is important too. Yeah, now, nowadays it's, uh, you know, you, you hear um, a lot about uh, of this me time and mm -hmm. sometimes it looks like selfish, as you said, but it uh, it's probably not, right? You really need to, to try to take uh, time to yourself because when, when I think about uh, how can one be at their best performance in a, in, in a company or how to excel in a job, it's also part about... Uh, how much do you sleep? How better do you feel? How how healthy do you are? Right. So yeah, no, for sure. You never perform your best, especially if you're managing or leading other people. Um, you know, it's really important that you actually are happier, less stressed, whatever. Because if you're overworked um, and stressed, like if you look at the Myers Briggs stuff, for example, and you read about Myers Briggs, you know, whatever your thing is, I'm an ENTJ. So if you look at the ENTJs and say, you know how ENTJs are their best and it's a whole bunch of good things. And then if you say how ENTJs are their worst when they're stressed and tired and you know, there's a lot of not good characteristics in there. So I think it's really important that you, um, that you do stay well rested and, and happy because then you actually, you know, you are performing as, as, as your best as a leader. So I, I, I totally agree with you. Let's talk about your career at Vertex and your current position. So you work at Vertex for 15 years where you grew from director of formulation development to SVP of pharmaceutical and preclinical sciences. You started with five scientists and end up supervising more than 350 people. Tell us about your career at Vertex, your biggest challenges and achievements, and why you are a firm believer in the power of bags. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Right. So yes, I mean, I, I was you know very fortunate. I, I joined Vertex. I'd been laid off from work. My husband was still employed in New Jersey, and we had a lovely farm in New Jersey, so I was quite happy there. And I didn't plan to move to Boston, but when I interviewed at Vertex and the people I met there, I really liked the people, and I, I just loved the fact that they had big ideas. And um, so convinced my husband that we should move to Massachusetts, and and uh, 
and I took the job and it was really obviously one of the best decisions I ever made. I joined the company at a time when, you know, they had a few drugs they'd developed up to a certain stage and they'd had one that they out-licensed to GSK, but they'd never taken a drug all the way into late development and to approval themselves. But right as I started, we started working on this drug called VX950, which became in CVEC, the first um, direct acting antiviral for hepatitis C. Um, so it was just a really exciting time and, you know, just seeing the data and having to scale up the molecule and turned out to need to be amorphous, which was kind of a new thing. So we had to figure out how to spray dry it and, you know, basically I built the formulation department and then became a head of pharmaceutical development. And then um, for a little while I was head of regulatory for, you know, about a year and a half and then, um, you know, took on preclinical as well. So, you know, my, my role kept on growing and the company kept on growing and we eventually ended up bringing, you know, five drugs to the market in a fairly short period of time, which is kind of unusual for, for various biotechs. And we went through, um, you know, I was there for three CEOs and they obviously all had different approaches and that was kind of interesting too. And so it just, you know, it was a really, yeah, it was a really great time. And I built this fantastic team that I'm very proud of and they're all still doing really, really well. And, you know, I hear from them often and they were all, you know, luckily when I left, they were able to promote the people that work for me to take on you know, some of the positions and stuff. So it was really nice to see that. And, um, you know, Vertex is doing great things. So it was a, it was a fantastic career and I'm very happy I joined. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, it's uh, ins inspirational for, for many of us. Uh, do you remember uh, a kind of a, a challenge around, a you know, along the way that uh, you may have faced? How did you overcome it? There's like something that you look back and you say, okay, this was really, really tough. Yeah, I guess the, when I was doing the regulatory affairs thing, so what happened was that the head of regulatory left, they needed someone, and so I landed up you know, doing it. And I was supposed to do it for like six months while we found someone, but it took a little longer. And so during that time period, we had to, we actually had to, we got a label extension for Clydeco and a couple other things and then land up filing the NDA for Orcambi. And so it was a very, very busy time. So I still had my other department and the regulatory department. So that was a time in my life where I'd say I was working too hard and I was too stressed out and I was kind of crabby. Um, and so at the end of all that, you know, the CEO, um, he was my boss and he basically, you know, gave me some feedback, which I didn't really love that said, you know, what you did was incredible, but sometimes the way you do it needs improvement. You know what I mean? And he laid out some things that he thought I needed to do differently. And I was pretty, you know, mad to be honest, but then I thought about it and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to just like not work so hard because working hard is not good for me. And, and I'd just been given this whole new department, which was called preclinical. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to not work so hard and I'm going to go around and I'm going to talk to everybody and figure out what they're doing and learn what they're doing and, and then figure out how to structure this whole new department. And so I did that and it worked out brilliantly because I did learn a lot from talking to everybody and then we did restructure the department in a kind of an unusual way and, and that learned, ended up being really good. And so, you know, the whole thing turned out to be really good. And, and in hindsight, I was really grateful that, you know, the CEO gave me that very frank feedback because, you know, often people are scared to give you feedback that might you might not want to hear and, and so they don't and if they don't give you the feedback and everybody's just talking about you behind your back then you don't know what you need to do to change you know what I mean so, so it, was, it was a little bit of a hard time but then it actually worked out really really well so I was you know I was happy for it in the long run that he that he told me stuff even if I didn't didn't initially react and think wow great you know what I mean I've just been working my butt off for the last year and a half and this is what you tell me you know what I mean but it actually turned out to be really good advice so no I I, I think that's uh it's it's great and i and i i agree with you that uh, you know sometimes when you came from a, a different country and you are raised with a, in a different culture you you can be like more direct or you can have the tendency to don't talk that much or be more shy like the opposite and that doesn't uh, uh, make you uh, uh, not a very competent person right you just work in a different way so i i totally agree with you that uh, Honest feedback, it's very important to to be able to to grow in a in a career. Yeah, I actually think that might be one of the reasons why it's harder for women to advance is because if you're a guy boss and you have a female employee, I can imagine you thinking like, I don't want to hurt her feelings, I don't want her to cry, you know, and so you're very kind, you know, and but then you don't necessarily give someone the feedback that they need to hear, and that doesn't help them at all. So I think if you're a woman and you have any suspicion that that's happening, you know, you should really ask leading questions that you know get that feedback out of somebody and if somebody gives you feedback you obviously have to make sure that you you know you reward them for giving the feedback and say thank you and make changes and tell them how much you appreciate it so that they don't you know so they don't feel like oh i'm not going to do that again kind of thing i think that's that's great um and tell us a, a little bit uh, 
about this power of bags, which I love this name, right? It's like the big, hairy, audacious goal. What, what's this? Right, yeah, we call them a BHAG. So basically um, it comes from this book by Jim Collins, is one called um, Built to Last and then another one called Good to Great, I guess. Um, and basically the concept is that organizations that have a core purpose um, and that have these you know, big, hairy, audacious goals and clearly articulated values that they outperform other organizations. And so in 2005, um, Vertex kind of embraced that concept and we did that. We kind of formulated our, our core purpose and our, our core values and all that good stuff. And so then I decided I would do it for my own group, which was formulation at the time. So we went and had this little offsite and we brainstormed and we came up with our BHAG. Um, strictly speaking, it was actually a vivid description. It was too many words for a BHAG, but I didn't know that at the time. So anyway, but the, not really important. So the the point was that in that BHAG, we had all these things we said we were going to do, including predicting everything, modeling everything, miniaturizing everything, um, having an article written about us in Harvard Business Review, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things was we were going to have only continuous processes in our own facilities, you know, GMP manufacturing processes in our own facilities. Um, and that was one of the BHAGs. But this was we, we made this up in December 2005 and was supposed to be a 20 to 30 year BHAG. And um, basically, Vertex's continuous drug product manufacturing facility was approved by the FDA in July of 2015. So, you know, basically, you know, less than 10 years after we'd made this BHAG, it was actually a reality, even though out of all the things in the BHAG, I thought that was the one that was going to be the hardest and most unlikely to achieve, you know, so it's just really cool. And I think what happens is if you have a BHAG and everybody knows what it is, then if you have some scientists working in your group and they say, oh, you know, I wonder if I should be working on this thing or reading this paper, it's a little bit out there, but it's like, no, no, I know my department wants to be doing this thing. Then they read the paper or they, you know, they, they work on the idea. So for example, when I was the head of uh, preclinical and, you know, pharmaceutical preclinical sciences at Vertex, one of our BHAGs was eliminate animal testing, which again, you know, the chance of us eliminating animal testing entirely, again, it seems really, really difficult, but so say somebody's in the toxicology group and they come across a liver on a chip, you know, they, they weren't, have any doubt as to whether or not that's something that we should be exploring because they know we're trying to eliminate animal testing. So it just, it really helps empower your whole organization if everybody knows, you know, what are the long-term big, hairy, audacious goals we're going after. And then they can, every day that they come across something that would allow you to get there just even incrementally, they know it's the right thing to do and they can start pushing for it. That, that, that's great. Um, and you also grew with, with the company, right? You were there for, for 15 years, so you have uh, um, a tremendous uh, grow in a company. Uh, when you look back to the beginning and then uh, to when you left the company, what, what are like the biggest differences, in special if we talk about women in science, that uh, you saw were implemented and you could recommend for other groups or companies to take? Hmm. So, I mean, one of the reasons I joined Vertex was because I had a female president and I liked the fact that there was a you know woman role model who was high up in the organization and she was a very impressive person, Vicky Sato. So that was one of the reasons I joined. But then at one point we went through a bit of a doldrums where actually there was very, very few women in leadership at Vertex. So there were, for example, 17 people that were senior vice president or higher and I was the only female out of that entire group, You know, which was definitely a little bit not so awesome. But then we started working on diversity and inclusion more proactively. And, um, and you know, if you look at Vertex today, it's it's really amazing. I mean, they've obviously got a female CEO and half the members on the executive committee are women and their board has, you know, got a lot of women too. And so I think it's improved a lot. So I think, you know, I think if companies actually make a commitment to doing it and work on it, you can improve it. Um, I think it's really important to measure it so that you know whether you're improving or not, you know, hiding it isn't good. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, it's, um, you know, coming to Lindra, though, it's, it was so nice to walk in the door. And on day one, you know, the company is already, you know, more than 50% women, even though we're mostly engineers of one kind or another. And the board is more than 50% women and the leadership team. It's just, it, and, and not just female diversity, but also, you know, ethnic diversity and all kinds of other diversity. So I really, really like that atmosphere at Lindra. Um, and that was one of the things that attracted me to it was just to see right off the bat. It wasn't something that I'd have to fix or work on it just it just was already really good and that was really awesome that that's great and in special to 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 other companies or when we want to also build a, um, a new environment i think it's it's fantastic to to hear that uh, uh, diversity and inclusion it's something that nowadays are uh, important super important in the um, in what a company can 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 turn out right yeah, well, I think it's really important because if you're a young woman scientist and you're interviewing for a job 
and you go interview and you're only interviewed by, you know, older white men all day. I mean, you're not going to feel comfortable about going to work for that company, right? So I think, um, and people need to recognize that you need to see people that are like yourself being successful in order for you to be feel comfortable in that company. And so, you know, given that the numbers of women graduating with science degrees is very substantial, you wouldn't want to be excluding, you know, that entire population just because of the fact that you've chosen to only have men at the top, you know, so I think, I think it's really important that, um, that you actually have diversity and inclusion. And again, you also want men to feel comfortable. So you don't want to go the other direction either. You want, you want everybody to feel comfortable. So you really have a even slate where it doesn't matter whether somebody's whatever, you know, straight, gay, woman, man, black, white, whatever, you know, they look at the company and say, Hey, I can see myself being heard here. You know, I can speak up, my voice will be heard and, and, and I can share my ideas and I'll be successful. That's what you want. And then you can have the best, you know, the best possible outcome. You, you accepted to be the CEO of Lindra six weeks after retiring from Vertex. Was this the ultimate challenge in your career? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess so, but it's actually been, it's sort of funny because I mean, in some ways, I mean, the, I have fewer people reporting to me now than I did at Vertex, you know, so from a size perspective, it's not bigger, but from a impact and level of responsibility and scope of responsibilities, obviously it's, it's totally different and, and really, really huge. and but it's been a lot of fun. It really has. I mean, it's very interesting and you know, I've learned lots of new things and I, I do love learning new things. It kind of keeps me interested and engaged. And I really like working with a good team and Linda's got a fantastic team of people that are very, you know, engaged and inspired and smart. And so that's really fun. So yeah, I mean, I definitely don't in any way, shape or form regret having done it. It was definitely a good decision. I'm really happy I did. Um, so it's, yeah, it was good. And when you, when you look back and, uh, you know, you, you took this decision like uh, three years ago after having, you know, being very successful at Vertex, um, what has helped you succeed in this world? Um, well, again, you know, some of my mentors on the outside of the company, uh, some of my peers. So there's this thing called the COVID CEO forum that was formed and by Jody Morrison, who's another awesome female CEO you should speak to at some point. But anyway, um, so that really helped getting through the COVID pandemic. Um, and yeah, and then just the people within the company. So for example, um, the people that have been there a long time. So Jess Ballinger, our chief operating officer, and Ray, our chief manufacturing officer, they've been there a long time. And so they have a lot of the history and they've been fantastically supportive team members. And then we hired more good people. And, you know, so I think it's just been combination of the people in the company that have been very supportive. Um, Amy Shulman, who's the previous CEO, um, and she's also the executive chair of the board. She's been kind of a mentor to me as well. And so, you know, and Catherine, our board chair. So it's really just the usual, the usual situation where it's the support network of people all over that have really made it, you know, possible for me to be successful, you know, including my family, my husband, my children, they're all pretty supportive too. So that, that's good. Yeah. This was uh, one of the things that uh, a good mentor that I, that I have also also told me when I when I came to Boston was surround yourself by the best people and you'll be successful. Yeah, that's and totally true. Yeah, you, there's a you know you there's this book something about multipliers or something. So I guess I can't remember anyway. But basically, you know, you can only do so much in a, in a day, right? So there's if you only rely on yourself, you can only be however successful you can be in working 24 hours, assuming you know, it's need zero sleep, right? But if you have a hundred people that are all awesome people that are all giving it their best and helping the company be successful, of course, you're gonna be way more successful. So it really is all about the people that you work with and that are in your team and what, you know, making them feel really empowered. And, you know, if everybody, everybody feels like they're working on an important problem, they feel empowered to come up with solutions and their ideas, and they've got, you know, the resources, the support they need to make it successful then you're going to have you're going to have a successful team basically and the same is applied to outside of work right the all the the pilers and uh, the bonds that you have outside are uh, also important for the, the the leader women that you are today yeah no for sure definitely so at this point of uh, your career and with all of your accomplishments do you feel you still need to prove your value as a female leader yeah, that was probably the most interesting question that anybody's asked me all week. I had to think about it pretty hard and I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I feel pretty comfortable now being a female leader. I guess the only thing is right now we're trying to raise money. And so I'm talking to a lot of invest, investment firms and uh, that's still very much a male dominated thing. And I kind of, the thought does cross my mind of, about having to work harder to establish credibility, you know, given that I'm a woman, but 
um, I think you know the story of what Luna is doing is interesting enough and compelling enough that it, if if there is that small lag, um, it doesn't last long. And so I'd, I'd say that no, I'd say at this point I feel pretty comfortable, you know, being who I am. And okay, I'm 57, so it took a while, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, I think it's good. I think you can, as a woman these days, you know, you might have that initial like, oh, is she the leader? But then it doesn't last long, and people quickly will accept that you are, and and you know, move on. They might have that like little unconscious bias as a flickering thought, but then kind of get past it. It's great. So let's talk now uh, a little bit about uh, Lindra. So Lindra uh, is developing long acting oral pills. For example, instead of taking a pill every day, one can take it once a week or even once a month. In the long run, you see this improving global health. What is your vision for the company and the impact it can have in the world? Yeah, so one of the reasons I joined Linda is because of the malaria eradication project. That was really interesting to me because, you know, having grown up in South Africa, where obviously, you know, malaria is an issue there, but the whole of Africa, it's a big issue. It's, there's still some areas where like 90% of the people have malaria and 60% of kids die before the age of three because of malaria. Um, and then those who survive still have, you know, long-term deficits from having, having had malaria. But anyway, um, so the concept of malaria is you would go to some village in Africa, for example, you give everybody one capsule that contained slow release ivermectin that would last for two or three weeks. And then basically anytime a mosquito bit a person, the mosquito would die. So if you, for example, if a mosquito bit a person who had malaria, they would die. So they can't pass it to another person. And you also interrupt the malarial life cycles. The mosquitoes can't have more babies. And so you basically wipe out all the mosquitoes. So that seemed really, really, really cool application. But then there's other applications in global health, things like once monthly oral contraceptive, um, once monthly HIV prophylaxis. So you can imagine, again, you know, if in Africa, if women either get pregnant or they get AIDS, pass it on to their babies, you know, the, the economics of the whole family goes, you know, really downhill. And so being able to prevent unintended pregnancies and preventing people from getting HIV is really important. So those are really attractive to me. Then started to work for the company and, for example, I lead products in schizophrenia. And when you find out about, you know, someone gets diagnosed with schizophrenia, I mean, it's really not a great diagnosis and, and it's really, really important to be on stable therapy. It's hard to do that when you're taking daily pills. And so you could really have a huge impact there. And so it's basically every disease I learn about that we're working on, I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's a great application. That's a great application. And it gets down to basically any disease where people need to take daily medication, this could really help improve adherence and also improve outcomes because you're not having, you know, the sort of the drug levels fluctuating like you do when you take daily pills. And so you're having a more consistent level of drug, which can maybe reduce side effects, improve efficacy, et cetera. So I think the potential for it is really, really huge. And, and our sort of our, our core purpose at Lindra is, you know, reinvent medicine for a healthier world. And, and our sort of audacious goal, BHAG, here we go, is that, you know, five to 10 years from now, no one's taking daily pills, which, you know, again, it seems audacious, and it, but again, there's just so many things that are happening so quickly in the world right now that, you know, I think it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. And so you know, we're going to try and make it happen, basically. That's, it's fantastic. Uh, in order to realize such bold vision, you need the right company culture. How do you build that? Well, it's, it's very interesting because I think at Lindra, the company culture was already a really great culture. And it's more a case of nurturing it and articulating it and continuing to build on it. You know, so, so for example, when I got to the company, it obviously already had a really great culture. And then, but what we've done over the past year is, for example, you know, define our core values, which means that we had focus groups and asked everybody, you know, when lenders are their best, you know, what does it look like? Tell stories about it. And people told stories and out of those stories came, we sort of coalesced around our three values. So it's, you know, value every voice is one, which is all about, you know, having your voice be heard. Basically the second one is I contribute, we deliver, which is all about teamwork. And the third one is um, resilient to the core, which is all about, res you know, resilience and when setbacks happen, bouncing back with new solutions and kind of, you know, coming up with 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 ways to get around it. So I think, you know, having having that well articulated really helps us because now when we're trying to hire people, we can talk to them about our values and see if that resonates. And, you know, is that the kind of thing that the culture they're going to like to work in, um, you know, as we evaluate people, as we grow people. And, and so it becomes really clear what behaviors we expect and are, are, are rewarding, basically. And so... Um, you know, we also have a diversity and inclusion team, we have an employee engagement team, we have a social committee. So we have a lot of that sort of employee empowerment engagement, um, which is really, I think, the very unique thing about Lindra, because we have people that are co-ops, for example, that propose ideas for ways to do things. And we say, hey, that's a great idea. And we jump on and we do them. Whereas a lot of companies, if you're a co-op or you're first year out of school, you know, you're not going to be asked for your ideas or, you know, your creative solutions to things. And so I think that's one of the things that's you know, really unique about Lindra. And I think, you know, we should maintain that and make sure it becomes, it remains as a key feature of, of working at Lindra. Because no matter what level you're at, 
your ideas are, are important and acted upon. Yeah, and, and in that case, you kind of create engagement and uh, you give uh, employees, uh, regardless the position that they are, kind of uh, power to also do something that they believe are going to, to promote a change in the in the company or in the in the technology you know especially we're doing something different so it's like you know i don't know anything about robotics and things like that you know so the people that know those kinds of things are the people that are coming straight out of school so you need to be relying on those people to um be coming up with the creative solutions so i have a, a one final question for you how do you see the biotech industry transforming the world in the next decades and what role will women play in it yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think the COVID pandemic has really il illustrated how the biotech industry can play a huge role, you know, with Moderna, for example, and BioNTech coming up with messenger RNA vaccines. And, um, you know, one of the companies uh, that's in Boston area that I'm on the board of, Synlogic, they're, they're um, developing, um, they call them living medicines, but basically engineered bacteria to, you know, cure various diseases. And I think the whole intersection between your, your gut and how it affects your whole body is still a whole huge area of exploration. And then of course the gene therapy and the gene editing, and then there's what Linda's doing to sort of deliver medicine in different ways. I think there's all kinds of incredibly interesting things that are happening in biotech. And I think with the pace of innovation going so quickly now, I think it'll it'll be really eye-opening just to see what comes out of it. And I think there are a lot of, um, you know, from my view anyway, there seems to be a lot more women involved in terms of being CEOs, founding companies, being on boards and things like that. And so I think, you know, women and men do prioritize and think about different things. And so I think having a more balanced uh, leadership will lead to better ideas and more innovation. And, and I think it'll be, it'll, it'll be great. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens basically. It's great. And I, I look forward to and, and see what is the, the role of, uh, you know, this young generation and what, what can they do to, to improve uh, the world and, uh, and uh, fast forward uh, biotech? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the younger generation is that they do want to work for something where there's a purpose, where there's an important purpose. They want to feel like what they're doing has meaning. It's not just about a paycheck. And so I think that will hopefully drive, you know, just better outcomes because people are actually doing things for the right reasons and not just doing it to, you know, make a buck basically, so. I, I, I agree with you. Thank you so much. This yeah, uh, was uh, <laughs> this was the first interview of She Has a PhD. I'm uh, I'm humbled to have you on the other side. I I think it was fantastic that you were yeah. my first guest. And I feel, I feel very honored that you picked me as your first guest. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, and so, that you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Yeah, no, it was great. And. Uh, wishing you a lot of success with your project. So thank you for taking the initiative to do it. I think it's awesome. Yeah, so I think it is. I'm <laughs> <laughs>